up later in the program. I don't know. Um, oh, that's oh. well. That's very kind of you. Um, it, well, Patrick Lane and Lorna Crozier are here. They 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 were reading um, at the Rackham Amphitheater. So hopefully, some of you listening today had a chance to catch them. And if not, um, you're going to have to go up to Canada or look for one of their U.S. tour dates um, when they're blowing back down. Down south here. Blowing by a cold front from Canada, right? Yes. I wasn't going to hold you responsible, but... <laughs> well, we, we think it's the opposite. The cold, cold front comes from here and blows north, actually. Really? <laughs> That's hilarious because isn't there like something like blame Canada? So maybe there, they, there you is. have like this the reversal blame the states. Or... We blame the states for almost everything. <laughs> Probably well deserved in most things. <laughs> no, I'm not going to beat up on the U.S. The U.S. It's we're, we're, we're I don't know. This is not a political show. This no. is about. Um, well, the poems actually might be political today in nature, but let's leave it to that. <laughs> and not my. Before we go any further, um, I'm going to read the two biographies on the books, um, uh, starting with Lorna, um, Ladies First and Alphabetically. <laughs> Lorna Crozier has published 14 books of poetry, including Whetstone, Apocrypha of Light, What the Living Won't Let Go, A Saving Grace, Everything Arrives at the Light, Inventing the Hawk, Angels of Flesh, Angels of Silence, and The Garden Going On Without Us. She has also edited several anthologies, among them Desire in Seven Voices and, with Patrick Lane, Addicted, Notes from the Belly of the Beast, and Breathing Fire, Canada's New Poets. Born in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, she now lives in British Columbia, where she teaches at the University of Victoria. And I have um, Lorna's book, The Blue Hour of the Day, Selected Poems. And this is the latest latest collection out. Right, Lorna, it came right? out last year. And McClelland and Stewart, a mm -hmm. really nice publishing. Uh, that published Lorna Goodison's uh, memoir as well. That's right, and He's, published Patrick's memoir and Patrick's novels. So we're, we're yes. all hooked into McClelland and Stewart in it's, one way or another. My impression of it must be that they've got all the good ones up in Canada. Oh, they've that's got definitely the, true. That's, and so without further ado, Patrick Lane. I'm holding Patrick's book, Last Water Song, in my, my hands. Uh, author of more than 20 books. Recently won, which we'll get to. We'll hear some of, about those coming up. Recently won the BC Award for nonfiction for his memoir, There Is a Season. He lives in North Sanic, BC, with his wife, Lorna Crozier. And we're going to we're going to fill in some of this from some more about Patrick to come here. Now, did I how badly did I just pronounce the town where you live? Sonich. Sonich. Yeah, it's an, it's an Indian word in, uh, from the Coast Salish people. Oh, OK. Mm. Oh, it's lovely. That's and, and are you right then are in the water? Are you uh, very close to it? Actually, it's, the ocean's about three minutes from our door. We just have to go to our front door and walk down through a little tiny regional park to the ocean. So it's really it's quite lovely. Yeah. Oh, that does. That sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. That's so. That's something that you. Um, does that sort of feed the 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 poetry and that that part of you as well? Uh, living there? It hasn't yet because we've only been in this house for two years. So um, what fed us, I think, in our other place was the garden that Patrick manufactured out of nothing. And that became, you know, central to his memoir. But we were in that, our old house for, I guess, 13, 15 years before we moved to this new one. So I think the ocean's just starting, at least for me, to, to seep into my bones. But it hasn't quite come out in language yet. Maybe we could do a little s a sketching of... Um, um, 
sort of where you've been, because if this is a new house, is it also a new area, or have you been in this region for a while? Because you were born in Swift Current, which is um, like a, a... In the Midwest. In the, yeah, the middle, right? right? You yeah. said north of Montana. Yes. Sort of to root everyone. Um, and Patrick, what about you? Are you a, a Western lad from the get-go? Yeah, or no, I grew up in the... Uh, southern interior of British Columbia, which is just north of Washington State. So, so the Okanagan. So the course. Okanagan Valley, yeah. 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 Which is a beautiful place, and, and which you said brings much sadness now, but maybe we'll also get, get to that a little bit. <laughs> well, sometimes I look at the world and it brings a lot of sadness, period, but that's okay. Yes, yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know why I'm laughing. Sometimes I just no, laugh. No, it's just okay. To, yeah, uh, you know, no, no, the ocean is, uh, we've lived by the o- near the ocean now on Vancouver Island for, uh, I think, 17 or 18 years. So we just never have quite lived this close to the water. We were about a, maybe a mile away from it before. So it's not as, uh, it, but it's pervasive. It surrounds us on three sides, the, the ocean on a very narrow peninsula. So uh, so it's it's been a part of our life for a long time. But I mean, for Lorna, who comes from the, the prairie, which is a sea of grass, right? So I um, mean, for her, she has a kind of uh, an ocean made out of, you know, uh, this narrow band of land surrounded by this great big sky. So she's always, in a sense, written about an ocean in her work. Yes. There's a story, I'm not sure if it's true or not, that prairie boys made the best sailors uh, during the the wars, especially the Second World War, because they didn't need trees and they didn't need hills and they didn't need mountains. They had the same vista standing in the middle of a farm field and looking out to the horizon that you get if you're in the middle of a boat. Right, because you're not used to having the different, um, either, not obstructions, but what what adds to our horizon. Yeah, we look look at them as obstructions (laughs) from where I come from. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to go around that with the plow. And, yeah. um, I love trees, but I can't stand to stand in the middle of them. You know, I want to break free and, and break out of them so I can see far away. And, and that becomes really essential to me. Oh, that is interesting. And that's what the fields and the prairies give you. Yeah, definitely. When I go back there, and I go back at least once a year, uh, I spend some time at a writer's retreat at a Benedictine monastery in Saskatchewan. And it's like I'm letting my breath out again because I'm in that startling, unrelenting, unblinking light. And the wind is making the sound wind makes when it goes through grass instead of going through trees or across water. And that's definitely home for me where everything opens up and you can see everywhere. I love hearing that That, because I actually have the exact opposite experience. That's why I need to be near a coast because but for the exact same reasons that you say but I attach it to the, the water. Right. I think where you guys live now is so wonderful. And I'm glad you get to go back to your touchstone at least once a year. Mm-hmm. Do, how did you, you're, you're both poets. And when, maybe, um, Patrick, maybe we'll start with you. When, um, on your website, it said you started writing in 1961. Um, yeah, 1960, can, 61, yeah. So why? And what does it mean to... <laughs> I could think of it as a curse rather than a blessing. I mean, <laughs> why any, you know, I, I think there's an old saying, you know, better to give birth to a, a, a poet than give birth to a viper. So uh, poets are a very odd bunch Opposite. of people. Isn't it? Uh, <laughs> give, better to give birth to a viper than a poet. Isn't it? See, there you go. Already we're talking to each other. I'm not so sure. Either way, it's not a good thing. No. Uh, we should, we should, maybe we should disclose that, that you two also, you're each poets, but you've been living together for a very long time time yeah. and, and you're married 30 so, years so, so okay so so and we'll yeah but what was but the question Patrick, it was back to like why writing like what what happened in the, the early 60s that that made you 
become passionate or made you believe in yourself as a writer? Well, those are, it's a really huge, it's a small question with a huge answer. So, you know, I could spend a half an hour talking about that. Suffice to say, when I was a little... give you 20 and Lorna 20. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When I was a little kid, I always wanted to be an artist. I mean, I loved to draw and I loved to to paint and things like that. And got a lot of praise for that from probably from my mother and from my teachers. They were being kind to a little blind kid who couldn't see very well, you know, because they didn't have glasses yet. So... Um, so I think that always stayed with me. And uh, when I got older and left high school, um, I wanted to be, I actually wanted to be a painter, but I, I couldn't afford to buy paint and canvas. Those were expensive things for me back then. So I turned to, uh, I'd always loved language and loved, uh, and, and loved reading and had somewhat in my high school years thought about writing, never seriously. Uh, but after I left, uh, I began to write poetry through the influence of a couple of people that I knew. And uh, and and so it began. I wrote some I wrote some work and sent it off to a magazine, and they published three of the poems. And I was hooked. That I just thought this was great. You know, I was going to be famous. So, you know, as if that was ever going to be true. But uh, uh, and that, but it that is. Began it has with, come true. Well, sort of. Yeah, sort of. Certain kind of infamy. And uh, and then I became really obsessed by by poetry. The more I read, uh, the more I read of it, and the more I practiced the art of it, I discovered how. Am- amazingly complex and uh, and beautiful the form was and uh, and uh, thus the next fifty years. And and so I wonder why it was poems that you chose because were were those the people that you met that you said were very influential after school that they happened to be poets or was it something yeah, in you that I think so. Um, you seem very handy with the lyric, like the things that you write feel very lyrical, very rhythmic, very pattern, very lyrical. Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't know. Uh, you got to run this way back in the early 1960s, and by the mid-1960s, poets were sort of like the rock stars of the day, so... Aha, uh, uh, yes, that's true, okay. <laughs> so, you know, there were lots of pretty girls who fell in love with poets, and uh, and uh, there was lots of acclaim for poets. There still is, but not in the same, sort of quite the same manner, so uh, we were sort of a popular bunch back in the 60s, so there was lots of, you know, extracurricular rewards that came with being a poet, you know, like I say, a, you know, a pretty girl, a drink, um, so... <laughs> but, but uh, but beyond that beyond that that uh, fascination no it was more just a fascination with the language and the forms that poetry presented and the beauty of the the beauty of the words. Mm. Well, that's the we can't argue with that. We can't. Um, <laughs> and and Lorna, how how about how about you? What is what? I, I just finished uh, writing a collection of essays, just sent off my last draft to my editor. And, and so one of the essays is where I actually talk about this a little bit. So I must be telling the truth here or else I just keep inventing the same fiction. But I, I believe it was because in grade one, I got a pat on the head for having written a good poem and it got uh, tacked to the bulletin board. And maybe if I had done something else, like painted a, a good picture, I would have started to get that little, you know, inkling in my head that this is something I could do. Um, my family didn't have a lot of books. There were no artistic types, you know, at home at all. But but for some reason, you know, I, I wrote a poem where I imagined my dog dying um, because my parents would feed her scraps every Sunday night. And they, they were farm folk, although I grew up in a city. And they'd give her chicken bones. And the chicken bones would shatter as they went through her digestive system. And so every Monday morning, she'd be whimpering 
whimpering and, and dragging, you know, her bum around on the floor. And I would think she was dying. So I wrote a poem where I imagined uh, my dog had died. I, I presume the teacher said everyone, you know, has to go home and write a poem. And, and it had the awful refrain, and we shall meet in heaven by and by. And heaven knows where I got that one from. And, and thank God I can't remember anything else in it. But but, uh, but the teacher said, you know, this is good. And, and all my classmates said, this is wonderful. And they were also sad for me because my dog had died. And of course, she hadn't died. And I didn't dare tell them the truth that I had made it all up. So I jokingly say that maybe when I was in grade one, I learned everything you need to know about poetry. <laughs> you you write what you care about and that you lie to get to the truth. And perhaps I've, I've learned nothing since then. Uh, we're, let's think about that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Lorna Crozier and Patrick Lane. We'll be back. When I was a child, my family would travel down to western Kentucky where my parents were born. And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered so many times that my memories are worn. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away Well, sometimes we travel right down the Green River To the abandoned old down by Avery Hill Where the air smelled like snakes And we'd shoot with our pistols But empty pop bottles Was all we would kill And Daddy, won't you take me Back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River Where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son But you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's gold train is hauled it away. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers on WCBN. And I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Lorna Crozier and Patrick Lane, um, two poets visiting us from Canada. Uh, also, uh, you guys are nonfiction writers, both of you, uh, essayists, and um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that, too, right? You're writing in... Yeah, I mean, I've written both... Uh, you know, I've written a novel and a collection of short stories, and uh, but also wrote a mem... <coughs> excuse me. and But also wrote a memoir uh, in 2001, a sort of uh, reprise of part of the story of my life. I don't think you can ever tell the story of your life. I'm not sure that it's possible to tell the story of your life. Maybe it's best to ask strangers about the story of your life. They probably know more about it than you do. Or maybe ex-wives might be able to tell you a few things about the story of your life. Or, present, sure. or present wives. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like Margaret Atwood has that wonderful you know, statement, you know, why don't you die so I can write about you, you know? So, <laughs> so and maybe that's true. So I don't know. I mean, I, we talked, Lorna mentioned about lying and and, uh, and I think, I mean, all artists will will uh, 
turn the facts on their head in order to reach for some kind of truth or some kind of uh, meaning in the in the world. I mean, as soon as you start describing things, you start inventing things. And uh, so perhaps lying is not quite the right word, that, rather that artists are really very highly inventive people, so you have to be careful around them. Because some people listen to a poem and they say, oh, did that really happen to you? And of course, no, it didn't happen to you, but you, but, but you imagined it happening to you, so it's the same thing. You know, so uh, something but, about it really happened yeah, to you in yeah. you. Yeah, you that's right. Up. You found something in you that is part of the feeling that the poem's trying to express, and and you can go with that. Uh, you know, I can read a poem. We I talked about how I love the beauty of words, and I remember once uh, Lauren and I were driving across the uh, the prairie, and we were heading uh, in the middle of winter, right around this time of the year. As a matter of fact, no, it was before Christmas one year, but it was it was uh, it's cold here in Detroit uh, uh, this week, you know. So, uh, <laughs> but it was really cold out up uh, where we were in in you know Montana and uh, and the Midwest, and and in we were in southern Alberta actually, and uh, it was 50 below, and uh, and that was 50 below uh, in the Celsius scale, not Fahrenheit. So God knows what that was Fahrenheit. When the wind was blowing, and it was really chilly, and we were driving across the prairie and and we saw this great herd of antelope and these the antelope uh, gather together in the winter you know and, uh, and when it's really cold is that uh, these great herds of antelope you see maybe 100 or 200 animals and they'll gather in a great circle and the youngest animals that they were born that year in the center of the circle and then the females surround them and then the males surround the females and it's like a kind of a they heat each other and uh, but what's important about it is that the young ones in the middle get the most warmth you know and that they'll survive protected from the wind protected from the wind yeah. and from the rest of it you know and, and and uh, we stopped the car, and and we got out. We wanted to get closer to see these animals. And of course, the, as soon as we stepped out of the car, and uh, the animals saw us, and they all got up very slowly in the cold and started to walk away. And in an odd way, I I, I felt so deeply moved by this that we had sort of, in a sense, threatened their lives by just wanting to look at them. That we have it would have been better if we had just left them alone because they had to then go walking through this terrible cold and find another place to lie down. And oh. you know, so uh, so our desire desire for beauty is sometimes very threatening to the world around us so and I wrote a poem about it it's called it's a poem called the beauty um, this too the beauty of the antelope and snow is it enough to say we will imagine this and nothing more who understands that failing falters at the song but still we sing that is beauty but it is not an answer any more than the antelope, most slender of beasts, most beautiful, will tell us why they go, going nowhere and going there perfectly in the snow. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, that, I think that kind of touches on if, if, if I have a poem that comes close to describing what it is that I believe about what poetry can do, that poem tries to touch on it. Yeah, saying it in words that you, better than, I mean, can you yeah, articulate would, well, it in, in another way too? Because that is, I sound, I don't, in a way I don't want to ruin the moment, but if there, if, is there some. Well, I don't think we have any answers. I, I think as, 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 
as human beings, we, we, we are constantly searching for answers, and uh, we want to have it down in black and white, like, you know, this is the reason that, we're, that this is happening. And, uh, and I don't think there are any answers. All we have is the moment, and uh, a pristine and perfect moment in which we can feel uh, ourselves exquisitely and beautifully alive. And then maybe that's about all, that's about all we're allowed. And, and in, that, in those moments, like a moment even like this, uh, we can imagine ourselves in, 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 we imagine ourselves in the world. And poetry tries to imagine us in the world. And so for the reader or for the listener, they can arrive at the poem and, and find themselves, you know, perfectly in the world through the magic of language. So. It's interesting because even if being so highly attuned as it seems like it, you are, both of you as poets, and, and to your the natural world here in this poem and, and the sense of connecting, being aware, and, and even as you're saying that we all we have is this moment, and but even in the saying of it, it's true we can have those those flashes, can't we? But then even as the flash is it's just there, then we're already cataloging it sometimes somewhere or in the moment thinking of I don't, the, the I don't know every time I turn around here I am yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. it's always right now right and I I loved how you said and even here because I was like yep this is not like the, the our studio is not the beauty of the antelopes in the in the the brilliance but for a moment but for a moment T it was for a moment we were out there with the antelope Oh, yes. You know, and, and that's where the imagination can take us. It can take us. We can sit, as, the, as our listeners are sitting out there, they can sit there, and for that moment, they were out there with the antelope in the snow. And that's where the words take them to. Yes. And today, on January 16th, in Ann Arbor, they can, they're even closer to it. Their imaginations can even be a bit a bit rusty or creaky, and they can still get there, probably. Um it's interesting also that you mentioned failures in, in that poem, too, because I think that that's, it's always, yeah, it's easier, to, easier to, and, and that it's linked to the perfection Yeah, that I mean, poem. as soon as we yeah. think we understand something, it's, uh, it's a very evanescent thing. It, it, uh, it slips away from us as soon as we think we have a hold of it. We think, okay, that's the answer, and then it drifts off, and, and, and I think that's what it means by, you know, who understands that failing falters at the stalk. But we keep on singing, you know, but still we sing, and that's beauty. You know, the fact that we keep on doing it, that's what it's all about. Yes, these attempts, these yeah. attempts, yes. Well, well, Lorna, I would love, let's, mm. let's hear, uh, can we hear a poem? Sure, I'll do, I'll do something completely different. Um, I don't think it's talking about poetry in the way that Patrick's poem just did. But when I think of um, one of the reasons why I'm a writer, um, you, you sometimes wonder why you think you have anything to say that someone else might want to listen to, right? Like, like why, why me? One of our one of our good friends was the amazing Canadian poet named John Newlove, uh, who died about ten years ago now, I guess. And one of our preeminent uh, singers, as, as Patrick would say, and he used to tremble when he got up to read. And and I once asked him why he was so shaky because everybody who came to listen to him was there in total adoration, just pleased to be with him in the moment. And he said that he feared that someone would stand up in the crowd and say, what right do you have to be up there saying anything to me? And, and I think that if you're honest as a writer, you always have a little bit of that feeling. You know, why, why am I up here saying my words, espousing what I think I know even momentarily to anyone else? And I, I think one of the things that drives me 
and has from the very beginning of my writing is my own family and the fact that I didn't see that kind of working class, um, non-literary uh, man and woman that my parents were between the covers of a book and always trying to, to understand them and to, to give them a place in, in, in literature, to give them a place in, in speaking my own world. And yeah, my poems, uh, poems especially. Yeah, yes, poems especially, you're right. And so my father has been a character that I've returned to again and again. And, and part of what is true in this poem, uh, one of the anecdotes I heard about him when I was a kid, was that he was the neighborhood killer on the farm when people couldn't shoot their own horse or dog or cow because it was ill. They would come and get my father, and he would do the shooting for him. In some ways, that makes uh, for them, and in some ways, that makes him sound brutal, which is what I thought when I was a kid. But as I got older, I thought, in a way, that was an important role that he played. It became an almost ritualistic role as as the man who could do that when it was for the good of the animal, not for the bad of the animal. But that was a story about him that used to bother me. Um, and after he died, um, I started thinking about if if there is a place where we go to after we die, would he fit in there? Because he didn't really fit into the world on earth. He was a lonely, laconic, solitary man. And I wondered if he'd be lonely in quotation marks heaven like he had been here below. And he would caused me tremendous shame when I was a kid because he was an alcoholic and no one talked about it, right? It was our great family secret. So all of that is is in the poem, I think. And my somehow um, wanting to honor him and bless him, although he was a, a difficult human being for me. It's called Anonymity. The country of the dead keeps growing. Is my father lost there too? Nameless, without schooling or belief? our love for him worn thin. Do the animals he killed remember him? The horses his neighbors couldn't shoot, the dog who dragged her sack of guts studded with gravel from the road to our door. So many times outside the house, I refused to know him. I turn my back on the slant six fair lane, black and white, the muffler he installed illegal, even then, the roar in the street, not a teenage pal, but my dad. Now I want him behind the wheel again, his color back. Seventy-three and thundering past the tall white houses of the dead, louder than their strings and benedictions. So they'll have to notice him. So they'll say out loud, there he goes, and have to name him Emerson Crozier in his souped-up Ford. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you. We're, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers. Today, Lorna Crozier and Patrick Lane.
Welcome back. You're listening to Living <coughs> Living Writers. I'm T, I'm C. Hetzel, and today Lorna Crozier and Patrick Lane are here in the studio. Um, and Patrick's got a cough. No. <laughs> we we took our break, and I think we were laughing in our in our break um, uh, because when we we just left uh, when we went off the air for a moment there, uh, and you got to hear some Dylan. Um, Lorna had just finished her poem, which was wonderful, and thank you for reading that. You're I, welcome. I bet your dad's he knows yeah. <laughs> and um but then lorna had said about patrick's uh, when he was speaking of his poem do you guys want to yeah <laughs> not that we can recreate it we we'll do a short radio play here that's right i just said you were really eloquent when you read that poem about the antelope and talked about it yeah but she's being very sardonic dear radio audience there's a slight sort of ironic twist no 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 none at all <laughs> the problem very the prob- eloquent she said the problem is when you live with someone who is an amazing writer uh you sometimes forget the amazing writer part you know uh, Patrick and I wake up together decide whose turn it is to do the laundry who's going to do the shopping you know we bug each other we nag each other you didn't quite close that drawer you know why are you opening that jar that way whatever and so I sometimes forget that I'm living with this this magical man who writes and says these terrific things the feeling is mutual (laughs) it really is it's a thrill to read together sometimes and be reminded of that. Yeah, we don't often get the chance to travel together. I mean, often, you know, uh, I'll be invited to a festival and or Lauren will be invited to a festival, and we rarely have a chance to sort of go on the road together. So one of the reasons we, we took this trip and came to Michigan was, was because it was a chance for us to come together. And so I, I don't often get to hear Lorna read her poetry, I mean, because she's always reading it somewhere else. And, uh, and same so here. it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to sort of hear her voice and, uh, and to hear her read. And her I think I mentioned last night when we were reading, what I'm always reminded of too, and I hear Patrick read, is that we've, we've lived together for 30 years and we live in the same place and we look out the same windows, but we see very different things or we write about what we see in a very different way. And, and that's always wonderful uh, and to observe that. And, sh- oh, totally surprising. Yeah. Well, Lorna I, I sees, like that. sees things from far off I mean, because she comes from the and there are no impediments to her eyesight except unless she gets down in her belly and stares through the grass. Other than that, you know, she's the tallest thing in the landscape when she's out, when she's vertical. So uh, she sees she sees far off vistas and distances. And uh, you know, and I grew up in the Okanagan Valley, and there were mountains around me and uh, desert country. And and I was blind when I was a kid. I really had very bad eyesight and didn't get any glasses till I was in grade two. So I uh, my focal point is about four inches from my nose. You know, so I spent my life my young life, uh, looking at things very minutely and very closely because that was the only way I could see them clearly. So when we go for walks together, I mean, I'll notice a beetle, mm-hmm. you know, walking across a leaf and, and Lorna will, you know, see uh, an eagle, you know, up in the sky. So uh, we balance each other really perfectly that way. Uh, you know, we, she has these, these vast vistas in front of her and I have these sort of intimate small distances. Yes, that is, that is interesting too because I would think maybe there'd be some challenges as to poets and with your own work and, and your own um, living together and 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 getting on so well as you obviously do and and so this is interesting maybe this is 
This well, is there, part there of were it. some problems in the beginning. We really fought for our own territory when we first got together, and and we've also now kind of made a bargain that if we uh, travel together, say we go to uh, Chile together, which we did, and and we start writing poems, we don't share those poems with each other until quite a long while after, because we might be using the same material, and and that came from we were back in my hometown for one year. I was a writer in residence there, and uh, on the prairies there are these big boulders that you find rarely that the buffalo walked round and round to scratch their backs. And so they've smoothed the edges of these boulders. They're almost like glass and there's this wallow around them. So they're they're quite something to see. And Patrick had never seen one before. And uh, I knew where there was one and I took him out and I showed him. And I thought one day I would write about this stone. <laughs> we call them buffalo stones where I come from. And about a day later, I went off and did my writer in residency job, I came back to the house and Patrick said, you know, here, hon, I want to read you this poem. And he read this most brilliant poem about a buffalo stone to me and that ended it. I couldn't write about right. it. That was it. And so we, we made a pact that we wouldn't do that again. We wouldn't let the other one know we were working on something that was obviously a quotation marks poetic image until that person had had time to digest the material for, for him or herself. So it's, oh. it's 28 years later, and she's still irritated. <laughs> <laughs> she, I really am. It was my... Damn it, the buffalo stone. <laughs> it was mine, you know. It was my landscape. There was one on my grandfather's farm. <laughs> she actually remembers the names of, of some stole. of my old girlfriends and, and, and says, well, what about so-and-so? And I mean, I don't remember these people, you know. She she remembers. So. And I just know them from the story. <laughs> I never met them. It's galling enough. <laughs> That's right, That's it right. is. Well, so that is really interesting. So, so just as a, a sort of a matter of uh, like how you go along with the writing is you you'll be working each of you, but um, it will be several months before you're showing new new work to each other. Is usually, that sort of how it? Usually, sometimes not. Sometimes we'll show a poem uh, fairly quickly, but. Uh you were fairly fairly careful about it. We're respectful it. about we're that. Respectful of often each often place, the poems yeah. come from um, say Patrick's deep past or my deep past and then we know that's that's entirely our own material, right? So there's there's never any problem of stepping over any kind of line in who gets the right to use that. But, but it's, uh, you know, if, if a heron is wading across our pond one morning and we both see it, then uh, we probably shouldn't show the other person what we've done with it. <laughs> and, and so how are you each your own best readers, would you say? Like when you're actually looking at the poems, when what part of do you do you help each other with the revision side of things or 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 is it more just to have someone who you know loves you hear the poem or it, it that really depends uh, you know i mean i'll show a poem to lorna and and lorna will say well well how do you want me to read it you know do you want me to listen to this just for pleasure or do you want some feedback and vice versa uh so you you know sometimes you really don't want feedback you just want praise you want the other person to say geez that's brilliant darling how wonderful and especially I, if it's a love poem right especially if it's a love poem you don't want to say well actually line three stinks you know so 
Um, but yeah, we're, we uh, well, we show each other our, our work. We're, we're, we're good critical. We have good critical understanding of each other's work. So, uh, but we're careful around it, you know, because uh, like any artist, you know, our, 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 we have egos and, and they can bruise fairly easily. So, um, but, uh, it's but a by delicate and large, operation. it's a delicate, it's always a delicacy. You know, I mean, just, you know, you're playing at the edges of, of things that are so, are so close to, uh, to your heart that, uh, that you just, the, the dance is a delicate dance. And at the same time, I think we save each other embarrassment. I mean, mm-hmm. um, particularly if we're, we're commissioned to write a piece, you know, for the Globe and Mail, for instance, Canada's big newspaper, uh, both of us would, would run that piece, whether it's a poem or a short nonfiction, you know, essay. We'd run that by each other and, and we save each other uh, it, Risks of sentimentality, you know, wordiness, uh, lack of clarity. We we help each other clear that up before it goes out the door, and that's a tremendous advantage to have an editor, you know, in the next room that you can use like that on the spur of the moment. Yes, who you, who you deeply trust. Yes, but it's not like trust. you hear each other's as you're working. It's not in those formative no. stages. You don't hear each other's voices. Like no, never. When you know someone so well, oh, that's good. Yeah, never. <laughs> no, but I'm I'm never? very aware though when Lorna's when Lorna's in her writing zone as. As, as they say now, um, you know, I'm very aware that she's there and I would never even think of trying to disturb her. I mean, I walk very carefully around that so that, you know, because when you're in the in that creative space where you're actually doing that writing, you know, it's so easy to jar somebody out of it and then it's hard to find your way back. So so we we both uh, are very respectful of that in our because we both write in the, in the same house. We have separate offices and uh, I mean, Lorna's office and my office are side by side. But uh, but I mean, I just I can I know from 50 feet away if Lauren is working because there's just a quiet in the house that's different than any other kind of quiet. So I'm, I'm very, very careful around that. And she is uh, equally so. It's a, it's a dance that we do as, as artists and, uh, and as, as just two people living together, as Lorna says, you know, we, we sleep together, we eat together, you know, we go to movies, we listen to music, uh, we watch some TV, uh, we read the newspapers, we do the things that ordinary do the people, people stuff. do. Not yeah. do the Doing those ordinary poets, right? people no. stuff. We're poets yeah, going not. to the you movies, know, that's you know, right. It's like Lorna said, well, it's time you got a haircut, you know, stuff like that, you know. She said that here in the... I made in, him get a haircut She made me get a haircut Ann here in Ann Arbor. <laughs> yesterday. Because you sort of nagged me down the street, and I because I hate getting my haircut, you know, I just hate sitting there, you know. So I got a really great... Great haircut. I told the guy, I says, look, you know, I says, move to where I live. I said, that's the oh, best which, haircut I've had for years. Oh, which place was it? It's in that little sort of... Uh, in the oh, arcade? Oh, in the, the arcade? Just near us then. Yeah. yeah. Nichols yeah. Arcade. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. great. A little shout out for neighborhood <laughs> great business. Little neighborhood guy. Barber. Great little guy. The barber you know. with the hat on. Oh, okay. Go to, go to him. Yeah. yeah. He looked like he needed a haircut, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he gave good haircut. Yeah. <laughs> The Goliath of haircutters. Yeah. Um, uh, well, it's so so this is your your working method. It's so interesting to to hear you guys and 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 Lorna, you teach as well. Mm-hmm. So how how does that um, impact your your writing life? I I think um, most teachers, to be honest, will say that helping students has a negative influence on their own work, on getting their own work done. And, you know, I, I love my, my best students and I'm so glad I know them and whatever small role I had in, in their success, I'm, I'm thrilled. But I find it, uh, that, that I give up my creative forces to them when I'm looking at their work and trying to help them shape what they've got on the page. It's that same energy. It's the same it? energy. When I go back home, then there's nothing left for, for my writing. So I'm in a wonderful state 
say right now I've been on a study leave for six months, and and I'm hoping that I'll be able to to get all the student voices out of my out of my head, and and their work, and just concentrate on what's going to come next for me. But I think it's a really hard thing to balance. Um, most writers I know have to have other jobs, and one of the more common jobs is to be a teacher um, at a university because we do get more time off than in other occupations with the with the summer break right but at the same time you're 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 drawing from the same well and uh and that isn't always a good thing but and but you both also it sounds like you you plan trips where you both wanted to go to chile and that was a working trip for your for the the poems was it well we were we were invited it was quite a long time ago now but usually when we travel we don't travel a lot on our our own because we get a lot of international invitations so we tend to uh, yeah (laughs) that tends to be our travel is to go and read at a literary festival in china or australia or chile or you know malaysia or or wherever we've been really lucky that way oh that does that sounds wonderful then yeah Um, Yeah, and lorna usually lorna can write on the road i mean she can write while she travels and I, i don't do i do almost no writing when i'm on the road i are I do absorbing? my writing after I come. Yeah, I sort of absorb it, and and then when I'm when I come home, I'll I'll, I'll do that kind of writing. So, but uh, Lorna will be, you know, uh, you know, she'll be I has a, scribbling away in her book, you know, and she's writing poems and she's writing stuff down. And, and when, I don't. When I don't we're do, on the road. I don't do that at all. Yeah, you write poems. You write poems. Yes, you do. I don't. Uh, it's a total fabrication. Well, we lie all the time, we poets. <laughs> and she, I'm probably making a grocery list or something. In Chile? <laughs> You're not making grocery lists in Chile. Get out of here. In Chile, I was making notes because I knew we were going to go home and we'd been commissioned to write a radio program for our national radio uh, channel. So that's what I was writing was notes for that. But uh, So more poems. nonfiction type yeah, notes. Quotations from people. Like we got to sit with a group of the relatives of the executed and the relatives of the dead and we were taken to some pretty scary devastating places and so I took notes then but normally I don't take notes for poems I think that the poem's going to be there it's going to come out as a poem and not as a journal entry yes um, it, it's it, marinating. Yes, I feel it's it's almost bad luck to do it the other way but I know lots of poets do have journals and notebooks but I've never been one of those well, that was, that was, you know, we're getting a little bit of everything today. <laughs> it's like we say something, we enact it. It's great. We're going to take a short break and then we'll come back. And I'd like to talk with you about your collaboration with, with the Canadian anthologies that, you, sure. that you've had. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, we'll take a short break. in the rain 
of a train They were hoping it was gonna be a long run Cause oh, oh my, my Hi, you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, we've got Lorna Crozier and Patrick Lane um, here, and it's it's been a great time, so I hope you've been with us this whole hour, and thanks to Alex Bell-Hodge, who's, who's engineering for us uh, and finding all these great songs. Mostly Canadian, right? Yeah, We've been I think doing so. the Canadian. Joni Mitchell, who comes from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. That's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? That should be in a limerick. Yeah, <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> you, try to, you should try to hear a New York New York cab driver say Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. It's pretty hard. Boy. Yeah. Can you can you do it? What it, what does it sound like, Patrick? Oh God knows. No, they stumble all over and then they start laughing. And we were in a cab in New York City, and Lorna told him, you know, Lorna gets she talks to people all the time when we're traveling, so she's gabbing away to this cab driver, and he said, where where are you from? And you know, she said. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. He went. He went. Saskatoon. He just killed himself. Laughs. Says, "Where they? Where's that? Where the hell is that?" He said, "Wow, crazy, crazy, crazy man. She's crazy." Oh, our Canadians, our neighbors to the north, and then you're like those crazy U.S. folks. Yeah. Well. Let's talk a little bit about your collaborative work because um, you've. It seems like you've done a great service to um, Canada's uh, literary community. You've created these uh, two anthologies, Breathing Fire, um, in 1994 and 2004, and it seems like the idea is to bring the new Canada's new voices, uh, put them in a couple of books for people to have yeah. access to? Yeah. Um, there was a, a great, one of the great Canadian writers who died here uh, about, you know, seven or eight years ago, a man called Al Purdy, a magnificent, great, great world poet, just a, and a grand man, you know, an autodidact, you know, self-taught man. And, and back in the early 1970s, uh, he brought out two anthologies of, of the younger contemporary Canadian writers, of whom one of whom was me, and uh, and and it was a, a wonderfully generous gesture in his part. You know, he used to laugh and say, "Man, I did it for the money," you know. But I mean, I, there was no money in it for him, really. You know, a few bucks. Uh, but you know, he cared a great deal about you know about nurturing and helping younger writers along. And uh, so, it was a, and there was a generation waiting to be discovered, sort of the generation of the '60s, and uh, and and he exposed that generation for the first time. In, in nationally, and so back, uh, you know, about 15 years ago or something like that, Lauren and I talked about this, and we could see that there was a whole new generation, younger generation of Canadian poets who who were just there waiting for someone to sort of, not to discover them, but to gather the best of them together in a in a group, and and so we decided to do an anthology, much like Al Purdy had done 30 years earlier, and uh, and and expose these new writers to a, to a larger Canadian audience, so we're, we did the first Breathing Fire anthology, which was very exciting anthology, and, and, uh, and, and brought many of these writers to national prominence and, and many of them have gone on now and have you know have have really important literary careers now you know that's this is what is it 15 years ago 18 mm-hmm, years ago they've got mm-hmm. they published books and uh, they're well-known writers uh, nationally and internationally so 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 that was one of your requirements when you were putting together breathing fire was it that they hadn't had significant attention beforehand or, or what, not or, not really a couple of them had already published a first book but we said oh. under 30 oh and, okay. and definitely not 
the second book. I think there were only two out of the first 33 writers that had had one book out, and the rest had had work published in, you know, small literary magazines. Uh, we'd given workshops for years across the country. They were some of the, the young, bright lights that we had run into doing that. And we just thought, you know, as Patrick said, that, that it was time that they came together as a, as a group and that people got to know about them across the country. And and so are, are, did you enjoy working this way, like ta- talking yeah. and choosing poems? And is it something that you feel like you, you might continue to do? As, as well, we did two of these anthologies. And after the last one, we said that was enough. It, oh, okay. A, they were a lot of work. And, uh, and it was... Uh, um, it took months of work. You know, you get hundreds and hundreds of submissions from people across Canada. And then and then choosing, you know, it's easy to get rid of, you know, but down to about 100 writers and then down to 50. And you know you can only do about 30 of them. And you're starting to make those kinds of choices that are really important choices because for young writers to appear in such an anthology is a kind of a significant stamp of approval that says you're the ones. And if you're left out of that kind of anthology, you sort of feel like you've been disdained or thrown apart. So you know you're you're playing with people's lives in a funny way. So mm. uh, it know, shouldn't be that important, but it is. It shouldn't be that important, but it is. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, we did two, and we said that you know That's over. It. We uh, hope someone else. Ten years after the, ten years after the first one, we did the second one, and then we yeah. said somebody else can do this. Later I think on. you guys should just tap someone, and that <laughs> yeah. way, sort of, you know. <laughs> that's a really and that's good a, idea. That's an honor for them to be tapped by you guys, and <laughs> yeah. then you don't. Yeah, the next yeah. decade is yours, right? Well, we, we started had, uh, having people say to us, "Why do people have to be under thirty? Like, don't you?" realize there's right. a whole middle-aged sector out there that doesn't have a first book out yet and we're writing just as well and why don't you pay some attention to us oh, i would want to read those letters yeah. no <laughs> yeah you get a little bit of flack from from that kind of thing right right which i, I understand i understand yeah. completely yeah. and we also did another anthology called addicted notes from the belly of the beast yes. and yes. and uh you know i mean i was i've been an alcoholic all my life and and uh, i cleaned up and and uh, became sober in 19 in in the year 2001 and uh, in the year 2000 actually and but but five years previous to that you know still as a practicing alcoholic uh, we began to do an anthology of of writers uh, we asked writers across the country I mean writers are no different than anybody else we, there's a myth that writers are all drunks and, and of course it's not true there's but the same proportion of drunks in the writing world as there are in you know in brain surgery you know and, uh, and gynecology and you know and in plumbers <laughs> and electricians around 20% of the population is alcoholic or you know addicted to something or another significantly bad and uh, so we 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 asked writers across the country who we knew had been uh, who were addicts or alcoholics or or addicted to you know people who ate too much people who were addicted to food to cigarettes to alcohol to drugs and we asked them if they would write a personal essay about their experience of being an addict now it was surprising the number of people who said they would and uh, it was equally surprising the number of people who said they wouldn't uh, you know we had a very eminent writer in Canada who just said I can't do that. He says, I can't write about my alcoholism. He said, then people will know I'm a drunk. And, and I said, uh, everybody knows now that you're a drunk, for Christ's sake. You know, <laughs> yeah. what, what are you trying to hide? We all know you're a drunk. I mean, everybody knows that. So, But he said, no, he couldn't do it, And uh, which was kind of sad. But the people who did, it was an important, really, really an important anthology for us to do. And I was at a big literary festival in Vancouver, and I was talking to uh, uh, a, uh, a man who uh, who 
criminologist. travels a criminologist who travels around the world and and works with uh, uh, the police forces in you know all over the world, the United States, Canada, Europe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, one of their areas, of course, that, that they're deeply concerned with is addiction. You know, I mean, you can think of your big war against drugs in the United States and things. Drugs and alcohol is a huge problem. And he said that the their the anthology that we did, he said, is studied by criminologists. All over the world now, he said, it's a, a basic text to understand the you know the addict and how the addict's mind and works and etc. etc. Et so wow, something you never would have imagined. We never imagined that would happen. He just said, "Wow," he said, "that is such an important anthology to us in the in in law enforcement and in psychology and psychiatry." He says this book's used all the time. So you might have so when you have these projects, there might I could see how something else, or do you have one that's that you're mulling over together that you're no. <laughs> No. no, okay. <laughs> All right. These things will happen but once every decade. We've got another, yeah. another decade to go before we do another one. Well, well, let's hear some. Let's hear another poem um, okay. from from each of you. Well, let please. me. I'll do a poem. We were talking about uh, being down in Chile and uh, and uh, and and being down there for a long time. I've been there a couple of times. We were there. And uh, and Lauren is quite right. We were privileged to to work with the, the the mothers of the disappeared. You know, the people that were disappeared and and you know dropped from helicopters and and buried in cemetery in, in graves in the mountains and the terrible troubles that Chile had and and so many countries in the world still have. And uh, there was a a wonderful writer who uh, who escaped from Chile. He escaped from the great troubles and uh, and left. And his. Uh, his companions and his uh, his girlfriend, whom he left behind, uh, two days after he left, his girlfriend uh, was killed and disappeared and died. And he he's written a number of poems about his experience down there. And, and he, this man's poetry affected me very deeply because it's a poetry of witness, and uh, and and deeply compassionate and and profound a profound love that he has for these people he lost. And so I wrote a poem called Impression, which is about uh, this man. And it's for, for those of us who haven't gone through this experience. Imagine a man who remembers. Imagine a man who has left his country forever. A man his friends helped over the mountains, say, or the northern deserts. A man who his friends knew would be arrested, tortured, made to tell all his secrets. Imagine this man, years later, remembering her thinking of their nights together, the smell of her flesh on his hands, her dark hair above him, her back arching, the way her breasts would rise, shuddering as small golden fish do when they lift their bodies into the sun. She is the one he is remembering now, the one they caught three days later. Imagine him thinking of her, remembering his mind going around and around, her breasts, the corner of that last street he saw, the blind man who sold pineapple there, the one people used to stand and watch, the sharpness of his knife, the way he would cut the pineapples perfectly, every slice precisely the same as the last, the one who never hurt himself, seeing that in his mind, the van, the noise, him on the floor, under the rags and papers, shaking, going somewhere, the mountains say, or the desert. Thank you, Patrick. Oh, you're welcome. Um, 
And that reminds me that you mentioned also that that your father you feel is as like a, one of like the the disappeared in the way too. And yeah, that might be. yeah. My father was murdered uh, back in 1968, and uh, and so he was a kind of disappeared father. He was disappeared father when I was a boy in the war, and he came back from the war after when I was six years old. He came back, and then you know then the years where he didn't really wasn't communicative, didn't talk about the war and and then by the time I might have had a chance to talk to him he was he was killed. So he's taken. Yeah, he was taken away. So he's a, he's very much a, a you know, a desaparecido, one of the disappeared ones. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Um Lorna, will you will you read us a poem? Because we're, we're, we're getting down to I the will. end of our time. Okay. So it would be lovely be to end to. with both your voices. Fear of snakes. The snake can separate itself from its shadow, move on ribbons of light, taste the air, the morning and the evening, the darkness at the heart of things. I remember when my fear of snakes left for good. It fell behind me like an old skin. In swift current, the boys found a huge snake and chased me down the alleys, Larry Moen carrying it like a green torch, the others yelling, drop it down her back, my terror of it sliding in the runnel of my spine. Larry, the one who touched the inside of my legs on the swing, an older boy we knew we shouldn't get close to with our little dresses, our soft skin. My brother saying, let her go. And I crouched behind the caraganas, watched Larry nail the snake to a telephone pole. It twisted on twin points of light, unable to crawl out of its pain, its mouth opening, the red tongue tasting its own terror. I loved it then, that snake. The boys standing there with their stupid hands dangling from their wrists, the beautiful green mouth opening, a terrible dark O no one could hear. Thank you, Lorna. You're welcome. Um, it's been such a pleasure to speak with both of you um, today. Thank you for being on Living Writers. It's been fun to be with you, T. And Thanks, T. And we'll have to we'll talk again sometime. And I'm so hope. thrilled when I keep hearing living writers <laughs> <laughs> that we're not using the opposite adjective in our I conversation. Know. I know. Well, it'd be kind of difficult to have a program like talking to the dead writers. <laughs> well, we're thinking uh, someone could do it. <laughs> we're thinking of a having, medium. Well, that's where we channel. We have people channel their favorites. So if that's you have right. a favorite you want a channel we'll come back and join uh -oh, us at the here table. comes the voice <laughs> my, my name is sylvia platt <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh keep your voice sylvia well thank you so much again to lorna okay. crozier patrick lane um and um thanks for listening to living writers for streaming thanks again to alex Bellhodge. i'm t hetzel until next time One of those crazy flings One of those bells that now and then rings It was one of those things It was just one of those nights Just one of those fabulous flights A trip to the moon on gossamer wing It was one of those things a bit about the end of it when we started jumping down we'd have been aware 
it around the boards, Hensick is there, puts it out in front, shot at them by Turnbull, he scores! Travis Turnbull took a bouncing puck in front and knocks it in the net. Wolverines extend that lead, it's now three to one. Eight seconds left to go, he will dump it into neutral ice. Five seconds left to go, Hensick gets the puck, sends it all the way in over the goal, and time is gonna expire. The Wolverines have won it. The number seven ranked Michigan Wolverines with the upset at home over the number four Boston College Eagles in an exciting game here at Yosai's Arena. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Daily Sports Report here on WCBN. Rushi Vias alongside Jeremy Kreisberg, Cheryl Friedman, and of course, Steve Pietris. Right, Petrus? All right. And we're set to bring you the uh, latest sports news from here on campus and around the country. And, Steve, I don't know. Do you want to start us off? We'll start talking about the basketball game last night. Sure thing. Big basketball game between Michigan and Michigan State. Michigan falling 54-42 to the Spartans. Uh, They had it within four with 448 left to go in the game, but they couldn't get any closer than that. Sean Sims had a big day, carried the team with 18 points and 9 of 14 shooting. Good thing because Manny Harris could not get anything going. Just had two points at the half, ended with seven on, ten, on two for 10 shooting. This team has now lost seven of their last nine. They're going to have to finish strong if they have a chance of making the tournament. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they could not, first of all, hit a free throw last night, and that was bothering the heck out of me. Okay? Because you don't play a close game with Michigan State and hope to win when you're shooting midway through the second half under 30% from the free throw line. Under 30%. They finished the game 6 of 11. 28 to be exact. Okay, they finished the game 6 of 11. Great. Okay, you don't win a game when in the first half, your only player who's playing well, that was Deshaun Sims, the entire night, you did not get him the ball 